And so you can begin by turning in your personal copy of God's Word to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is where we will be studying this morning. As you know, we live in an autonomous age, an age of independence. We love to do things our own way. We want to do what we want to do. The individual's desires reign supreme. Whatever an individual wants to do, they should be able to do that, so our society says. Therefore, we view each other as separate little lords running each other's, running our own lives. And we wouldn't dare tell one another uh, what should be taking place in each other's kingdom. Because frankly, I don't want you telling me how I should live my life. And so we value our independence. But we also live in a secular age, not just an independent age, but a secular age as well. For decades now, God has been removed from our public conversation, which has had the effect of Him being removed from our private lives as well. Whenever someone mentions God in the wrong context, the cultural authorities are quick to pounce and clean up any trace of theological language because that, my friends, is against the rules. It's like a game of cultural whack-a-mole. And they're standing there with the mallets waiting for some theological language to pop up and then they'll smack it down quick to slap you on the hand if any quote-unquote religious language happens to pop up. This is, of course, through a distortion of what our founding fathers envisioned for this nation. And by doing that, the cultural gatekeepers have declared that Christ is not welcome in our public dialogue. Oh, sure, you can have your private beliefs. We're not going to touch that. But, oh, don't, don't bring those into this classroom. Or don't, don't bring those beliefs into this legislature. Or don't bring those beliefs into this office or this courtroom. And the list goes on. This is a secular age, an age in which God has been rejected and Christ's lordship is rebelled against. Sadly, many Christians have imbibed these values of the day. They go to church on Sunday, sure. They may read their Bibles during the week. And they thank God for saving their soul from eternal damnation through the blood of Christ. But when they step into their spheres of work and play, Christ is nowhere to be found. He's in their hearts, but he's not on their minds. He's Lord over their eternal destiny when they die, but he's not Lord over their everyday life. My friends, this must not be so with us. Jesus Christ is Lord over all the earth, and therefore he must receive our full submission at all times. To help us live these lives submitted under Christ, we're going to look at Psalm 127 this morning. Psalm 127 is a short psalm, as you can see. It's only five verses long. It sits squarely in the middle of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are a group of psalms that uh, we can see at, labeled at the title of the psalms. They run from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These psalms are believed to be a set of Jewish uh, songs that were sung as the pilgrims began to approach Jerusalem. As they came to Jerusalem to attend the feast throughout the year, whether it be Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles, they would sing these songs as they ascended up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat in the hill country of Jerusalem, somewhat of a backbone down the ridge of the country. And so whether you were coming from the north or you're coming from the south or from the east or west, you had to ascend up to Jerusalem and thus the song of ascents, the songs of going up. 
And the Jewish people knew that music was a powerful tool for worship, a powerful tool to direct our hearts. And so as they sang these, they would be preparing their hearts to go and worship God at Jerusalem. Now, when we think of psalms, we typically think of praising God. And that is for sure what many of the psalms do. This psalm in particular is known as a wisdom psalm, which means that it gives timeless truths for all of life. And that certainly fits the author. As you can see, the superscription to Psalm 127 says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Solomon's name is clearly identified as the author here. He only wrote one other psalm, and that was Psalm 72. He wrote, as we know, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And so this was Solomon's forte. It is wisdom literature. And as we know, he was uniquely qualified to write such literature. Because it was Solomon who, after taking the kingship from the hands of his father, David, was worshiping at the high place of Gibeon, 1 Kings 3 tells us. And as he's there worshiping, offering sacrifices, God appears to him and asks him, and says, Solomon, you are a young king. What is it that you would like from me? Solomon, who has the world available to him, asks God for wisdom. God, would you please grant me wisdom to be able to lead this people well? Well, that is that was the right answer, as it were. It is exactly what the Lord was pleased with, and God granted him wisdom to rule the people of Israel. And so it is out of this gift that Solomon wrote all of these words of wisdom including Psalm 127 that we have before us this morning. The main theme of this psalm is God's sovereignty over life and family. Solomon makes the point that God is in control of all things, whether we like it or not. We can ignore his control and sovereignty, but all our efforts will wind up empty. All the things that we do in Our day and in our life have direct relation to God. Either we are depending upon Him in those things or we are ignoring Him. And so, from this psalm this morning, we are going to say two ways to respond to the sovereignty of Christ. Two ways to respond to the sovereignty of Christ. And if we confess Christ as Lord, then we must, these must be our responses as well. Let's begin by reading. The psalm before us. Psalm 127, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Solomon writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Two ways we need to respond to the sovereignty of God. The first is that we need to recognize his sovereignty over your daily life. Over your daily life. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. As we look at these verses, a repeated word clearly hops off the page at us. And that is the word vain or vanity. It's used three times in two verses, which clearly seems to be a point that Solomon is trying to get across. As we know, vanity is not a new theme for Solomon. The book of Ecclesiastes is a message about the vanity of life without God, and therefore these verses fit right in line with that. Solomon wants to draw our attention to certain vain activities. 
It's as if he staked a huge flashing neon sign in front of these activities so that we would see it before we engage in them. He's warning us of the vanity, the emptiness that's found in these activities. The word for vanity, as I've really already said, means empty or futile or nothing. So Solomon is teaching us what things we can waste our lives on. He's teaching us what things amount to nothing in God's world. The first reason we need to recognize Christ's sovereignty over our daily lives, we see, is that because independence always proves empty. Independence always proves empty. We see this in verse 1. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, the first thing that stands out to the reader here in this verse is the parallel structure, right? The repetition that we see here in verse 1. And this is a, a standard feature of Hebrew poetry in order to make this point. Now, even though the activity listed in both of these, both parts of this verse are different, both halves make a very similar point. That doing anything apart from submission to God is worthless and pointless. Now, the first activity that Solomon brings up here is house building. House building. There have been several different suggestions for what kind of house Solomon has in mind here. Some have seen it as referring to the temple. Because as we know, Solomon was the one who was responsible for building the temple in Jerusalem. David wanted to. God says, no, your son's going to do that. And Solomon was that son to pick up the mantle and build the temple. Others have seen it as referring to the building of a house or a family dynasty. As you know, the scriptures will often speak of a house as referring to a family dynasty. In that very place where God told David that I don't want you to build me a house, God says, I'm going to build you a house, meaning he's going to build him a family dynasty in which the king, the son of David, will sit on the throne of David. And while it certainly could refer to these things, I think it, uh, there is no problem with it simply referring to people building homes as well. The common everyday activities that were taking place in Israel at that time. You see, the Bible tells us that Solomon's reign was very prosperous. In fact, there was so much silver and gold in Israel at that time that 1 Kings 10.27 says that the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And if you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem or been there, you know that all the buildings are made out of stone. And if you simply step outside of, of the city, you'll see that the ground is littered with stones. Stones are everywhere. And so for the author to say that that silver was as common as the stone that you saw everywhere is absolutely remarkable. We can't even fathom the amount of riches then that were in the city at that time. But not only was there incredible wealth, but there was also great peace. David was known as the conquering warrior. He was going out and conquering the lands. And so by the time that he ended his reign, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was quite large. And so Solomon took the throne and merely needed to sustain that kingdom. He didn't have to go conquer new lands. Yes, there were some battles, but it wasn't the kind of gaining territory that David had to be engaged in. So this meant that the average Israelite man was not out in battle, but he was at home with the family. He was engaged in domestic activities. And so what were on the minds of people during this time were houses, homes, and families. Now, the second activity that Solomon mentions is the watching of a city. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. In ancient times, cities were often circular compounds surrounded by a wall. In the middle of this city were the administrative buildings, the community centers, the, the places used for the local government there, and then the, the uh, people's houses spread out from there, many of them even attached to the city wall itself. 
And so the only openings in these walls were the gates. And stationed by these gates were often watchtowers, high towers that were built so that a sentry who was placed in that watchtower could see the surrounding area sooner, see things coming off in the distance sooner than somebody just on the wall. And so these watchmen were crucial to the city's protection, as you can imagine. They could see enemies approaching from far off. They could see any messengers that might be coming with, with news. They also provided a night watch when everyone else was sleeping. And so now with these common activities that Solomon mentions here, he declares that unless the Lord is involved in these everyday common activities, that they won't accomplish anything at all. They won't accomplish anything. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But who is this Lord? Who is this one that must bless all of our efforts? Well, as you can see, the Lord here in your Bible text is written with small caps. Written with small caps. That is an a indicator given by the translators that the word in the Hebrew text there is the divine name known as Yahweh. Earlier scholars called it Jehovah. This is the name of God, not just a title of Lord, but an actual name. Yahweh is identified in the scriptures as the creator of all things. He is the one who called Abram from Ur and told him to go to Canaan. He is the God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and who delivered Israel from the clutches of Egypt. He is the God who is revealed in the New Testament to exist in three persons, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, then, we pick up this declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the Lord that we see all throughout the, New Test- all throughout the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter cries out to the nation of Israel. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we know from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that the newborn cry of the Christian That when the Christian is born again, the first words from his lips are that Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess that as believers in Jesus. Believing that God raised him from the dead and in that we are saved. And so therefore, as we read Psalm 127 today, we read it knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. And so therefore, Solomon says that building a house is in vain unless the Lord builds it, unless Christ is involved in this activity. Now, we know that this does not mean that the construction workers should simply sit back, pour a glass of lemonade, and sit there and drink and say, hey, God's going to build this house. I don't have to do this. Solomon, thanks for getting me off the hook here. This is great. God's going to build this for me. Not at all. In both of these activities, Solomon is not showing the illegitimacy of these activities, but he's showing the worthlessness of doing those things with no reference to God. The problem in this verse is not house building or city watching. The problem is secular house building and secular city watching. It is the problem of godless independence. That's what's worthless. Nothing meaningful will result when God is ignored. Now remember that this is during a time of great prosperity and great peace. And the people had money. And they had time. And isn't it true that when those things are plentiful, that God is easily forgotten? Solomon knows that the temptation for these people is to forget God and to be ungrateful for the blessings that they've received. But God had warned about this. He had 
warned that once they were placed in the land and they prospered, that they could forget Yahweh their God. I want to show you this. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the warning that God gave the generation that was to enter the promised land. Look at verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Moses, writing, says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you Water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Solomon knows this passage. He knows that they were, generations ago, they were warned that they would get into a land and when their wealth would multiply, the temptation would be there to forget their God. And so here he is in Psalm 127 saying, listen, if you build this without reference to God, it is in vain. It is worthless. It is pointless. It would lead them into a delusion of independence. To think that they can do it all on their own. They don't need God's help. Well, as you know, the situation is not much different today, is it? We have great amounts of time, great amounts of wealth, hurrying ourselves about with lots of activity. And yet the temptation to forget God in the midst of all of that is just as great now as it's ever been. For us to think that we're self-sufficient, that somehow we got ourselves to the position that we're at, Somehow our life is self-made. And yes, we do put in blood, sweat, and tears. We do work hard. But there's a need to recognize God in the midst of all of that. The truth is is that this truth that that Solomon gave the Israelite nation is true for us as well. In fact, you could make this statement a formula, really, uh, that can apply to any of our daily activities. If, uh, unless God blank, those who blank, blank in vain. You could have that phrase and you could plug in anything that you do in your day, anything that you do in your life, and it would hold true. Unless God is involved It's going to be futile and pointless. Unless you're depending on God and submitting to his control and sovereignty over your life, everything you do will be worthless. And let's just think about the things that we spend our time on. From our occupations, to our hobbies, to our home life, to our entertainment, to the time with our friends, the times on vacations. Are we doing these things 
in submission to our Lord, or are we doing them without a thought for him? Because unless the Lord is involved, we do those things in vain. Now, as we've been saying, this doesn't mean that we stop doing these things. It means that we do them with right recognition of God's sovereignty. Now, you might ask, how are these things empty? How are they vain? How are they pointless? Well, we need only to look at the end of our lives when we stand before the final judgment seat of Christ. And it's there that the the fire of God's righteous judgment will make clear what what will truly stand and what will fade away. It's there that the, the true test of vanity or worth will be. I mean, just think about your occupation. Whether you are a stay-at-home mom or whether you work outside the home, either way, if you do these things every day with no relation to God, then Solomon's saying that in the end, it's going to amount to nothing. It will not have deepened your trust in the Lord. It will not have accomplished God's purposes. Did you know that God has an opinion about your work? God has an opinion about what you do every day. He cares about it. And not just that you be a good person in the midst of it, but actually what you are trying to accomplish in your work, the purposes for why he has given us work. God cares about all of that. And when we fail to work in such a way that we understand that, then our work is rerouted and it falls flat from what God has designed it to be. If Christ isn't in it, then it won't last. It's as pastor and author John Piper has popularized the slogan which says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When we abandon Christ as Lord, the world doesn't work as it's supposed to. To borrow an illustration from uh, Pastor Art Azurdia, a pastor in Portland, he, he used the analogy of a kite. He says, let's suppose that a kite could come to life and develop its own personality. On the one hand, it would feel the exhilaration that comes from the surges of wind that direct it through the sky. On the other, it would almost immediately take notice of something annoying. The tugging of the string at its center. A feeling of constraint, of resistance. And soon the kite begins to think to itself, if I could only detach, then I could really fly. To the kite, you see, it seems that the string is limiting its full experience of freedom. But as any boy or girl who has ever flown a kite knows, were that string to suddenly snap, The kite would lose its place. Uh, But as any boy or girl who has... (laughs) Were that string to suddenly snap, the kite wouldn't soar freely for very long at all. It would dart to and fro for a minute, maybe two, but very soon thereafter it would end up on the ground in a pile of broken sticks and torn paper never to fly again. Rather, you see, it is the taut line between the kite and the one holding it that enables the kite to fly. It allows all the principles of aerodynamics to come into place so that the kite might achieve its full purpose. And this is the way it is with Christ in our lives. We were designed to live tethered to our God. It is the height of human pride and hubris to think that detaching ourselves from God will give us freedom. For it is only as we remain tethered to our loving Lord that we experience life as intended to be, full of joy and fullness. You see, the West right now is currently trying to construct a society with a God-denying foundation. They're trying to cut that cord and say, watch us fly. Look, aren't we great in our flight? 
But we know from this verse that we won't get very far. If you jettison Christ, you jettison truth. And therefore, lies begin to infect society. And we know these lies have been happening for a long time. People today are now more outraged at the death of an animal than they are at the death of a child. More and more people are opting for pets instead of children. The sanctity and dignity of life has been lost. Our banking and welfare systems is built upon theft and selfishness instead of thrift and selfless consideration of future generations. Our leaders, many are men and women with deplorable character. We are seeing what happens when Christ is ignored in a society. Well, how do we rectify this? How can we build our houses, as it were, so that Christ is building it? How do we build a society so that Christ is building it? Well, let me suggest that there are three things that are implied by the statements that say that Christ is to build our house. I like to say that it's par for the course, using P-A-R as an acronym to help us remember what, depending on God in the midst of our activities, is to look like. First, P, pray. We're to begin everything that we do, all of our activities in life, with a humble acknowledgement that we are weak, that we cannot accomplish anything on our own. We must confess that to God That apart from God, we can do nothing. And we plead and ask that God would please bless whatever activity that we're doing. Whether it be our parenting. Whether it be our occupation during the day. Whether it be a sports activity that we're involved in. Whether it be our activity online. We ask for God's blessing in what we do. P is pray. A, act. We don't sit back. We ask for God's blessing and then we go out and do it. We've got to work Fulfilling our task in a way, listen to this, that accords with God's word. We don't just step out and do whatever we want. We act in such a way that accords with God's word, that aligns to his law. So that as we build our house, as it were, it is according to the glory of God and the standards that he's set up in his word. If we're building our house and cheating the workers who are building that house, we're not building it in such a way that the Lord is building it. Even if we prayed about it before we started. The way that we do it matters. We act and we trust the results to God. P, pray. A, act. R, recognize. We need to give the recognition to God at the end of it. That God is to receive the praise. Because see, if we walk away from whatever activity it is and we have our heads puffed up thinking that we've accomplished it, then we've missed the whole point. We need to begin independence, we need to act independence, and we need to end independence. Giving the praise and the glory to God because he is deserving of it. That he has given us the strength to do this. Guys, the positive side in all of this is that when we do our daily activities in dependence upon the Spirit for the glory of Christ, God blesses our work. God blesses the everyday average things that we do. He cares about it and he wants to see his name magnified even in those things. So don't think that God only cares about these big things in your life or these spiritual things in your life. God cares about everything. He wants to see his name magnified in everything because he's Lord over everything. So give those things to him. Act in dependence upon him and watch him work. Watch him bless your work. So we need to recognize Christ's sovereignty over our daily lives because independence always proves empty. And number two, because worrying always proves empty. Because worrying always proves empty. Look at verse two. He says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now Solomon continues to point out the futility of life untethered from Christ, but this time he's highlighting the attitude of the Israelite that he takes into his work. Israel, as we know, was highly agricultural. 
in those days, and you can just picture a farmer waking up before the sun rises, going out to work the fields, working all day. The sun sets, and he's still pulling in his tools when it's dark. And the harsh reality is if he doesn't go to work, his family doesn't eat. So his work is very, very necessary, and this drives him. But it does more than motivate him. It worries him. Notice it says that he eats the bread of anxious toil or of painful labors. The word anxious translates a Hebrew word, which in other contexts can mean pain or strenuous work. And the point is that this man is frantically trying to bring in food for his family. And the problem is not his bedtime or how hard he's working. The problem is his clear lack of trust in God's provision. He thinks that because he controls his life, he needs to do everything. He thinks that it depends upon him. And this leads him to panic and to worry about where the next meal is going to come from. But once again, Solomon simply says that all this worrying is in vain. It is vain, he says. It is empty. It is futile that you do this. In the end, it amounts to nothing. He thinks he's gaining because he's busy with activity. But Solomon says, no, you're not gaining. Sure, you may be pulling in a few extra crops. You think you're doing what's needful, but you're missing the most important thing. This causes us to look at ourselves. Are we worried for the things that are in our life? Are you worried about anything right now? Maybe a job. Maybe a family situation. Maybe you're worried about who you're going to marry. Maybe you're worried about your children. There's plenty of things in this life to cause us to worry. But in all these things, we need to trust our loving Lord. He is there with us. He has things under control. He only does what is good. And therefore, we need not burn the candle at both ends of the day in worrisome toil. Does that, again, does that mean that we sit back and watch God work? No. It means that we act in dependence, knowing our limitations. If our hearts are weighed down with worry, then it's a telltale sign that we are trying to control our own lives and we are failing to recognize the sovereignty of God over our lives. I don't have time to turn there, but I remind you simply of Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33, where Jesus, speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, speaks about the, the emptiness of worry. That you need not worry about food and for clothing. Because your Father in heaven knows that you need those things and he provides for the sparrows and for the lilies of the field. Is he not also going to provide for you? How silly it is to worry. You can't add to your life at all. You can't change the circumstances by worrying. So trust the Lord. Trust your heavenly Father and he will give to you. So we need to recognize Christ's sovereignty over our lives because independence always proves empty because worrying always proves empty And thirdly here, because he always provides richly. Because God always provides richly. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, for he, being God, the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon ends this verse with a blessed promise. One that I think is largely forgotten in our 21st century world today. That he gives sleep to those whom he loves. After talking about this frantic, worrisome worker, he reminds the reader of God's generosity. God is not withholding anything from you. In fact, he is giving lavishly and richly and generously to you every night. Do you receive that gift? It's possible that in his frantic scurrying about, he thought that in order to do all that God had called him to do, he needed to forego some sleep. Well, God's called me to do this. I've got to provide my family. I've got to do this. He thought that being faithful to God was doing more stuff and resting less. But Solomon reminds him that sleep is not the enemy. It is the gift of Yahweh. And isn't that 
how we can often lose perspective on sleep. Charles Spurgeon once said, Many threaten to bring themselves into the sleep of death by neglect of the sleep which refreshes life. We are playing with fire as we neglect sleep. And as I said, folks, this is a needed word for today. We are sleeping less than previous generations. Scientists who have studied it have seen that we are sleeping between one to two hours less per night than people did 60 or so years ago. And we're sleeping about two and a half hours less than people did 100 years ago. And yet sleep is valuable. It's an important part of our lives. We spend 30% of our lives sleeping. And how well we do that 30% affects the other 70%. And what the psalm reminds us is that how we sleep says something about our relationship to God. In fact, you could say that we preach a sermon each time we sleep. You're making a theological statement each time you sleep. I want to suggest five truths that we declare when we say that we don't need more sleep. I get these from a book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture by David Murray. I recommend the book. He simply lists these five. These are five things that we say when we limit our sleep to try to accomplish more of what we're doing in our life. Number one, we're saying that I don't trust God with my work, my church, or my family. I believe that God is sovereign, but he needs all the help I can give him. If I don't do the work, who will? The second thing we say, I don't respect how my creator made me. I am strong enough to cope without God's gift of sufficient daily sleep. I refuse to accept my creaturely limitations and bodily needs. Thirdly, I don't believe that the soul and the body are linked. I can neglect my body and my soul won't suffer. I can weaken my body and not weaken my mind, conscience, and will. The fourth thing we say when we go on too little sleep, we're saying, I don't need to demonstrate my rest in Christ. Although the Bible repeatedly portrays salvation as rest, I'll let others do the resting. I want people to know how busy, important, and zealous I am. That's far more important than the daily demonstration of Christ's salvation in when and how I rest. And number five, the fifth thing we declare when we go on too little sleep, we say, I worship idols. What I do instead of sleep shines a spotlight on my idols. Whether it be late night football, surfing the internet, ministry success, or a promotion. Why sleep when it does nothing to burnish my reputation or advance my glory? Do you see how we preach a sermon by how we sleep? We're saying something about God each night when we lay our head upon the pillow. Listen to the words of verse 2 again. It is vain that you rise early and, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Notice that it says that God gives sleep, not just to anybody, but to his beloved. His beloved. Solomon was personally aware of this love of God. In fact, the word here for beloved is almost identical to Solomon's private name, Jedidiah, given to him by Nathan the prophet, which means beloved of Yahweh. And so he also can sense, he sensed the personal love of Yahweh. But we too know that personal love, do we not? We don't know it because he has given us a special name, but because he's given us his son. He's given us Christ, and the gospel reminds us of God's love and his generosity to us. And so if we confess Christ as Lord this morning, then we are among his beloved, those whom he loves. So Christ is Lord over all 24 hours of our day. From our sleep to all of our activities in a day, either we are happily submitting to his sovereignty or we are trying to run life our own way without him, which leads to frustration, futility, and anxiety. So the first thing we've, first response to Christ's loving sovereignty we've seen is to recognize his sovereignty over our daily life. The second response that we see in this psalm is to relish his sovereignty over our children. To relish his sovereignty over our children. We see this in verses three through five. Now this, this verse clearly takes a shift in Solomon's focus. 
And this has led many to believe that these are two different things, maybe even written by two different people, and they were having to be slammed together in this psalm. But as we're going to see, I I believe that there is a consistent theme of God's sovereignty that, that strings this whole psalm together. Solomon starts out this section with a Hebrew word that is used to get the reader's attention. Most of our translations use the word behold. The KJV uses lo. And what that simply means is it's trying to get the reader's attention. It's trying to have a snap to attention because he's about to give us an important word. And what does he not want us to miss? He doesn't want us to miss God's view of children. And so we need to relish, we need to deeply enjoy God's sovereignty over our children because, number one, they are a gift. Look at verse 3. They're a gift. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. This verse is another clear example of Hebrew poetry. It shows the parallelism. They use different words, but to communicate the same idea. And as one author noted, it's It's great that the Hebrew poetry was written that way because think about it. If it had written poetry like we write poetry, which is to make the last words rhyme, we would miss all of it, right? We'd miss all of it. But the fact that the Hebrew poetry is conceptual more than auditory means that uh, we are able to see the significance of what the author is trying to say. And so the, the clear point that Solomon is making is that God is the source of children. They are his to begin with, and they are his to decide who to give them to. They're a heritage from the Lord, and as implied, a reward from the Lord. Children are not just a product of nature, as our materialist world would like us to believe. Children are told in schools that uh, simply the biological process brings about children. And certainly God uses the biological process, but the scriptures are clear that God is the giver of children. They live in God's universe. This is his world. He gets to decide what's true and what isn't. And in this world, children come from him. They aren't just a package dropped off on our doorstep. They aren't just unwanted tossaways. They are the Lord's prized possession. They are a heritage, an inheritance. They're a reward. Now, our society so often shows kids as a burden. They're to be seen and not heard. They they get in the way. They require so much time and money. They keep you from doing the things that you really want to do. And for all of human history, there were such things as unplanned pregnancies. But now in our society, we have unwanted pregnancies. But not only do we not want some of our children... But we are determined, as a society, to kill those unwanted ones. Abortion has been legal in this country for over 40 years now. And while the numbers are hard to calculate, we've at least killed well over 55 million of our children. The gifts that God has given to us, we have killed. If you need any evidence of our nation rejecting the sovereignty of God, you need only to look at how we have killed the gifts that God has sent to us. Christians should be among the loudest voices, standing for the unborn who are in the crosshairs of our nation's desire to to free themselves from God and free themselves from morality and free themselves from accountability. And the children stand in the way. So they must be done away with. May we not sugarcoat what is happening all around us. Children are being murdered. And it grieves the heart of God and should grieve our hearts as well. Now if, if you are here this morning and you have been involved in an abortion in the past whether as a mother or a father, let me tell you this morning that there is forgiveness for you at the cross of Christ. 
There is so, no sin so great that would cast you from him. Jesus bled and died so that you and I may receive forgiveness for all of our sins, even the most grievous ones. So I encourage you, repent of your sin if you have not already. Turn to Christ. Take your guilt and your shame to him and find forgiveness and healing. For that is only where it is found. But in light of this verse, let me also speak to another group of you. For some of you out there, you may read this verse and actually be confused or in some pain. Because you believe this verse. You know it. You love it. You agree with it wholeheartedly. And there's nothing that you want more than to hold the gift of God in your arms to take care of this reward from the Lord. But so far, that's not the case. Your arms are still empty. Let me remind you that God has not forgotten you. He's not giving you the second best. He's not withholding anything good from you. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He is not withholding anything good from you. Remember that he is a good father and all that he does is good. Every decision he makes for our lives is good. He knows what he's doing. And the unique road that he chooses for each of us to walk down is a good road. It may be hard. It may be painful. But it will always be good. It's good because he is with us. It's good because he's in control. And it's good because he knows the destination. So friends, cling to him this morning. Don't read this verse and push away. And to all of us as the church family, Some of you do not have any children, as I have just made mention. Some of you have not had young children in your home for quite some time. And some of you are yet to have children. But whatever your stage of life, if we're going to think and act Christianly when it comes to children, then we must see them as a gift. Those children you see running around the church are a gift. Those kids in your small group are a gift. Foothill Bible Church should be known as a place that loves children. And I praise God that this has been part of the legacy here. And I pray that we only excel still more to embrace the little ones that God brings to us. So we need to relish God's sovereignty over our children because they are a gift, but also because they provide protection. Provide protection, the psalm tells us. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In ancient Israel, children, especially sons, were a prized possession. They didn't have medicine. They didn't have hospitals that you could simply uh, take your aging parents to. And so children were the best hope for people in their old age. The elderly depended heavily on the children to take care of them. And the sons in particular were responsible for this. We see this is still true today in a lot of third world contexts. And one of the ways that sons would protect their fathers is described at the end of verse 5. He describes this event that takes place at the city gate. The city gates were places where people would pass through every day, and so it became the center place of the society. That's where the court was set up, and the elders of the city would meet, and decisions would be made, and disputes were resolved all there at the city gate. And so here it describes an event where the father is being uh, challenged accused of something. And because he has many sons, they all come to his defense and are able to speak for him there when his enemy is looking to do him harm. We see this dynamic of 
decisions being made at a city gate in Ruth chapter 4, if you'll remember. Boaz goes to the city gate to talk to the elders about Naomi and Ruth. The same idea is in view here. Now, our society doesn't work in the same way. We don't go to city gates to decide things, uh, and uh, we can, uh, but we can certainly understand the idea of children caring for their parents in their old age. And this is one of the responsibilities, I believe, biblically, of being a child, is that we are always giving honor to our father and our mother, that we are always seeking to take care of our family. This is one of the ways that children can give back to their parents, is that the parents take care of children when they're young and helpless and not able to take care of themselves. And in return, children take care of their parents when they're old and have a hard time taking care of themselves. Let us not be guilty of abandoning our parents in when they need us most. We could go into a whole thing on how our society views the old age, but we don't have time. I want to draw your attention to the way that Solomon describes children in verse 4. He describes them as arrows. He says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Arrows were a key weapon for ancient warriors. They enabled the warrior to be able to shoot a target farther away from himself. And one soldier could inflict many wounds through his many arrows. So children are also weapons that are sent out from the family to accomplish the will of God and particularly to thwart the enemy of God's kingdom, Satan. We are in a spiritual battle And well-disciplined children are powerful weapons in that fight. Notice a couple things about arrows. Number one, arrows must be shaped. You take a twig and it's a little crooked, that arrow needs to be whittled down into a nice, straight arrow. It needs to be shaped. In the same way, children need to be shaped. There is a popular trend today to simply let children go about their way. That they, if you simply take a hands-off, that they're going to find the right way in life. The Bible does not know that parenting methodology. The Bible knows a clear and direct shaping of children, a heavy investment, involvement of parents, showing children what is right, what is wrong, and shaping their character so that they might be a well-tuned arrow. Parents, do not sit down on the, the job. Do not leave the shaping to somebody else. You are called to shape those arrows that are within your care. It is a full-time job. It is a great responsibility. And the time flies by quick. But may we be faithful to shape them in the correct way. Secondly, arrows must be directed. A man can't just simply fire an arrow anywhere. He's got to aim his arrow in the right direction. And so we must point our children in the right direction as well. We must show them what living a life that honors Christ is all about. As the saying goes, aim at nothing and you'll hit it every time. We can't simply send our children out to do whatever. We must show them what it means to live meaningful lives or they will end up living aimless lives, an arrow wandering about, not sure what to hit. The American values of simply a good job, a comfortable life, and good money are not sufficient for a follower of Christ. We aim at something higher, something deeper, something truer. We are aiming at glorifying Christ. We are aiming at winning people to Jesus. We aim at using our time, our talents, our resources for his purposes. Parents, point your children in the direction of Christ and his glory. Lastly, arrows must be released. Arrows must be released. The term now is helicopter parent, right? The parents that follow their kid to college and are living right next door and are watching everything they're doing and still checking on their homework and it follows even after college. These are parents who are not releasing their children. They are, they are pulling it back and then kind of letting it go and still want to be there around, but they are not firing their children out into the world. Children that are never fully released will not have the impact that they could To not fully release a child might look like you prohibiting them from going to the mission field or from moving away because you want to be close to them. Or it might look like too closely holding the hands of your young adult children. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Parents are to be there as invaluable coaches to their children, even into adulthood. My parents are still valuable coaches to me. And, and, and young people, let me encourage you. See your parents as those valuable coaches. Go and, and, and ask for their counsel often. We are to honor our father and our mother by seeking that counsel. But parents, we cannot be helicopter parents. We need to let them go. I'm reminded of my mom's motto that I heard all throughout growing up. She said, we raise them up to send them out. And she just repeated that motto over and over again. We raise them up to send them out. We raise them up to send them out. And I pray that my wife and I would be able to continue that, to know that we have a a, a limited time to shape and direct our children, and then we are going to release them and send them out, that God might use them mightily for his purposes. Lastly this morning, I just want you to see that in the beginning of verse 5, Solomon says that children are a blessing. He says, children are a blessing. They're not a burden. We are blessed if we have them. And so our takeaway this morning is that we need to humble ourselves before the sovereignty of God because he is God. And we need to recognize his sovereignty over our daily lives and relish his sovereignty over our children.